Thank you, preacher. God bless you tonight. Thank you, gentlemen. Let me invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Revelation, chapter number 2. Revelation, chapter 2, and I'd like to begin tonight in verse number 8. And as you're turning there, I'd certainly like to say thank you so much to Brother Brown and thank you so much, Bible Baptist Church. What a great joy it is to always be in this place, and I'm grateful and thankful for what God is doing uh, your heart for the Lord and your heart to labor for the Lord is a great encouragement. And I, I appreciate so much your faithfulness. And, and if I could take a moment, just encourage you to keep on abounding in the work of the Lord. You know, this isn't the hour to quit. This isn't the hour to mail it in. This is the hour to double down and put it into Drover Drive and say forward for Christ. Because uh, this could be the last service. Uh, I, I don't have any idea when Jesus is coming. Uh, uh, all I know is we're 24 hours closer than we were at the service last night. And, and my one of these days, one of these hours, the trumpet sounds and Jesus comes. And may you and I be found faithful when that hour comes. God bless you as you labor for him, as you give for him, as you serve him. And, and your labor's not in vain in the Lord. I'm so grateful for what God is doing in this place and trust that uh, he will, confident that he will, continue his good work until we see him. You have your Bible tonight to the book of Revelation chapter number 2. Uh, I'm quite certain that the greatest mistake people make when they come to the last book in the Bible is they mispronounce the name. You know, most people, if you listen carefully, will call this book the book of Revelations. But it is not the book of Revelations. It is the book of Revelation. That changes everything. Because most people have the idea that the last book is in the Bible so that God reveals unto us the end times. But if you read Revelation chapter 1, verse number 1, the Bible does not say these are the revelations of the end times. The Bible says it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you come to the last book in the Bible and you are trying to make it a puzzle book to make the latest breaking news story line up with some verse in the Bible and you're going to have to find a pandemic in here, you're going to have to find World War III in here, you're going to find out who wins the next Super Bowl in here. I don't know what you're going to find. But if that's how you come to the book of Revelation, you are making a grave error. The book of Revelation, like no other book in the Bible, reveals the Lord Jesus Christ and his salvation, and his power, in his glory. When the book of Revelation begins, the Bible describes the great bloody shed so that you and I could be saved. When the book of Revelation ends, it ends with King Jesus sitting upon the throne and ruling and reigning forever and forever. He is not only the beginning of Revelation, he is not only the end of Revelation, he's everything in in between and so if you're looking for something else well you might think you find it I don't think you do personally but if you're missing Jesus then you're missing the purpose of revelation John was exiled to an island called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He was ripped away from his church and his family in a city called Ephesus, put on a boat, set across the Aegean Sea, and he came to the ancient island of Patmos, an island for criminals. Last summer, I followed John's path into the island of Patmos. He was on a boat full of criminals. I was on a ferry. I think he had it better than I did, to tell you the truth, but... 
But uh, my stepping out into Patmos was quite an experience. Even now, it is a step back in time. And, and it wasn't long before I was climbing a steep mountain that, that well, very well, Pastor John in the mid-90s, in his 90s of years, climbed so many years ago. Of course, religion, they're so good at this, aren't they? They found the cave where John stayed. They found the cave, you know, where there's this little ledge. That's where he wrote Revelation. Over there, that's where he slept. And you see the fissures, the three of them in the rock. That's when the light came shining through the Father, the Son, and the whole religion's good at that. But you know, for me, the greatest thing about Patmos was sitting on a rocky hill and looking out over the Aegean Sea. It's just a gorgeous part of the world. And the day I sat there, was there wasn't a cloud in the sky, kind of like the, the beautiful day we had today in Marysville, California. And you know, on a Sunday morning, Pastor John, no doubt, was sitting somewhere near I, the place I was, looking out over the Aegean Sea. And on that Sunday morning, his body was on the island of Patmos, but you can be sure that old man's heart was back there in Ephesus. The church had gathered together. They were singing the praises of the Savior. Someone was ready to preach, come by the way of the cross. And on that island of Patmos, all of a sudden, someone was speaking to Pastor John. He must have been stunned. How would anybody know I'm here? How would anybody know my name? And that old man turned around, and there in front of him was none other than the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. The Lord Jesus said, John, you're about to write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. And God gave his words to the word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus then delivered the words of God to Pastor John. Pastor John carefully wrote them down, and those words, excuse me, they were not sent to a seminary in Alexandria, and they were not sent to the American Bible Society, and they certainly were not sent to the World Council the churches, those words were sent to New Testament assemblies of baptized believers where they carefully copied the scriptures and sent them on to the next place. A horseshoe along a highway from the city of Ephesus at the beginning to the city of Laodicea at the end. Seven major cities along this highway and at every one of those spots there was a New Testament church that was planted Kind of like a good idea for Highway 99 in the middle of California, don't you think? And, and every stop along the way, there's a New Testament church. And those seven churches are about ready to get a message from heaven, from the mouth of God to the person of Jesus Christ, to the hand of Pastor John, to the New Testament churches. What a moment this is. The first letter was sent to the angel of the church in the city called Ephesus. That was Pastor John's old church. That's where Pastor John had been taken from, arrested, thrown on that boat and sent to the island of Patmos. But it's that second letter I'd like you to see with me tonight. And in Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 8, the Bible says, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works, and tribulation and poverty. You know, I'm not a big fan of air quotes, okay? You know, there are people like that's all they can do. Every other, every, constantly. And, and I don't know what, you know, everybody, you got something that you don't like, right? What can I tell you? I, I mean, you got something that just kind of rubs you to, I just not a big fan of air quotes, okay? So if you like them, that's good. So while I, I'm never going to get up and do air quotes, I, I guess when we come to Revelation 2 and verse number 9, we got to do an air parenthesis. The Bible says, I know thy works 
and tribulation and poverty. But what a statement is next. But thou art rich. This is the story of Jesus and his rich church. Father, I pray for your help tonight as we go to the mighty word of God. I ask, Father, that you would encourage Bible Baptist Church and you would make this assembly of baptized believers strong in the word of God, strong in their love for Christ, strong in their burden to see sinners saved. Father, I pray that you would do a work that a preacher cannot do and, and should someone sit in this place tonight and they have never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful night to come in repentance and faith and call on the name of the Savior. So we ask for your help. We ask for your blessing. We come in the great, strong name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. In America, we understand there are certain pockets of our country where different religions dominate. You don't need me to tell you that not too far from here in the state of Utah, I small town Utah, small city Utah, it is dominated by the Mormon religion. In most places in Utah, if you're not a member of the Mormon religion, you're not going to get elected to office. Good luck trying to run a business. Why, the Mormon religion just seems to have a hold on so much of Utah. If you go to certain cities in the state of Texas, it seems like they are dominated by the religion of the Southern Baptist Convention. If you go to the state of Louisiana and you get to the other side of Interstate 10, you'll find a region of our country that is ruled by Roman Catholicism. In the upper Midwest, in Minnesota, Wisconsin, it seems like every small town, you better be a member of the Lutheran religion or you're not going to go anywhere. And you know, we kind of get that in America. However, a city or even a state was established, the settlers that originally came there, I, the religion of their forefathers, but we get it there are pockets in America where certain religions dominate and so it was in Revelation 2 and 3 I mean the first church the first letter was written to the angel of the church in Ephesus if you open your Bible to the right page in the book of Acts you can almost hear the screams come rising right out of the scriptures great is Diana of the Ephesians everybody knows that in the city of Ephesus we are worshipers of the goddess Diana and in Ephesus oh there was a smattering of other gods temples and idols but the number one religion without any question was the worship of Diana. But when you come to the city of Smyrna, a Smyrna, I fear, was like a lot of cities, maybe even some states in America. Because while you and I get Utah's got one religion, Texas got their religion, Missouri's got their religion, Minnesota, these places have their religions. Well, I'm afraid there are spots in America I'm afraid there are cities in America that have a different religion. It is the religion of worshiping the government. You see, at lunchtime tomorrow, you know, you're going to sit there, I'm going to sit at lunch and we're going to bow our heads and we're going to thank the Lord and we're going to recognize that all the good gifts and all the perfect gifts, all the wonderful provisions that we have, they are from our God. We thank him for providing food. We thank him for providing our housing. We thank him for taking care of us every step of the way. But as you and I look to the living God of the Bible as the one who provides for us, there are too many in America that look to Washington or they look 
look to Sacramento and say it is the government that gives me food. It is the government that gives me a house. It is the government that takes care of my health. It is the government that meets my needs. So in parts of Washington, in parts of Oregon, I'm afraid in some parts of your state, in parts of Maryland, in parts of New York, in parts of, uh, of places like uh, Massachusetts and Rhode Island, uh, you will find dominant people that literally worship the U.S. government. It is the government that cares for me. It is the government that meets my need. They worship the state, and it's nothing new. 2,000 years ago, it was called the imperial cult. And there were places like Ephesus where they worshiped the goddess Diana. But when you come to the city of Smyrna, they were worshipers of the Roman Empire and more specifically of the Roman Emperor. And as you make your way through the first century, one by one, it seems that the Roman emperors were so impressed with themselves that they would exalt themselves and magnify themselves and, and even claim to be gods. And by the time we get to the end of the first century, the world is being ruled by the Roman emperor Domitian. And there is hard to find a man more wicked and a man more evil. He demanded that when you come into his presence, you call him my Lord and my God. And in a place like Smyrna, they literally worshipped the Roman Empire. And so that meant once a year there was a ceremony. And once a year, if you were a good citizen of Smyrna, you had to show up at the ceremony and why you had to take a little incense and a spoon. Some places they had a little salt you had to throw. But whether you're throwing the salt or probably in Smyrna, you're tossing some incense into the air as you threw the salt or as you tossed the incense, the good citizen was required to simply say these three words. Caesar is Lord. And do you know the thing? You didn't even have to mean it. N nobody was going to take it. Nobody cared. You, you didn't have to say it with your heart. You had to say it with your throat. You didn't have to mean this. You just had to go through the motions. And all the government wanted were people that would just get along and let their neighbors know and let their friends know and let their family know as they throw the incense into the air that Caesar is Lord. And if you were to go to the ceremony and toss the incense, everything was good. You kept your job. Your boss was happy. The government was pleased with you. You would have no conflicts. You would have no troubles. All you got to do is show up once a year. And you don't have to mean it. You don't have to say it from your heart. You don't even have to be honest. If you go through the motions and you throw the incense and you say the words, Caesar is Lord, then you're good to go for another year. And in the city of Smyrna, there was this tiny, tiny, insignificant little assembly of baptized believers. That's what a church is, by the way. There was this little assembly of people. I mean, so tiny, you didn't even know they're there. Smyrna then was a massive city. Today, it still is a massive city. You know, a lot of these cities have come and gone, and there's nothing but ruins. Not Smyrna. Today, we call the city of Smyrna Izmir. And if Izmir was planted right in the middle of the USA, it'd be bigger than Chicago. No, this is a massive city now. It was a massive city then. And you would think in a big, huge city like this, there's this tiny little assembly of believers stuck somewhere. You would think nobody would care. Uh, you would think the Roman Empire says, who cares about those people? Uh, you would think the government of Smyrna would say, we don't even care what you do. But no, they cared because Satan cared. And all they had to do was show up once a year 
throw a little incense and say, Caesar is Lord. And this little church wouldn't do it. You know why they wouldn't do it? Because Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. They wouldn't do it. But don't you, you, you know, I'm awfully glad about this church. I'm awfully glad they didn't have the internet back then. And I'm awfully glad they didn't have a cell phone back then to dial 1-800-CHRISTIAN-LAWYER. <laughs> I'm just glad they didn't. Because I can almost hear the conversation, you know, Brother Brown. 1-800-CHRISTIAN-LAWYER, what are we going to do? You know, all we got to do is throw the incense and say the words, and, you know, we don't even have to believe it now. All we got to do is go through the motions. All we got to do is show good citizenship. And, you know, I can almost hear some Christian lawyer say, <clears throat> well, you know, for... If you want to be a good testimony, you better throw the incense. And you say, that sounds awfully strange. Yeah, it would to me too. And I never could have come up with that on my own. But brother, three years after COVID, I don't doubt anything anymore. And I can hear, you know, you better be a good testimony. And you're never going to be a good testimony unless you throw the incense and you show everybody you're a good citizen. Thankfully, they didn't have 1-800-CHRISTIAN-LAWYER back then. Thankfully, they had a Bible. A Bible that says we ought to obey God rather than men. A Bible that says it is a sin to bow down to any graven image. A Bible that reminds us again and again, it is Jesus our Savior who is Lord, and it is not the Roman Empire that is Lord. And all they had to do was toss some incense and say the words, and this little church wouldn't do it. You'd think, who cares? A few years ago, it was a Sunday evening, and I was in the country of Jordan. Uh, in Muslim countries, very frequently, uh, uh, New Testament churches have to meet on Sunday night because Sunday is a work day, a normal day. And this church, and, and, and the best I could found, believe me, I searched the best I knew how to, there is one independent Baptist church in the whole country of Jordan. And so that Sunday night, you know, their little website, however it looked, it said 7 o'clock we meet, and, and I had no idea. You know, it was, it was Google Maps or bust on this one. And I mean, I started driving into Amman, this massive city of millions of people, and I got further and deeper into Amman, and, and pretty soon the big highway turned into a city street, which turned into an alley, and, and there are no lights, and it's getting dark, and I'm in the middle of downtown Amman, Jordan, and, and Google's got me taking the left here and taking the right here, and then all of a sudden I parked in front of this building. And of course, in a place like Jordan, you're never going to see a sign, Bible Baptist Church. And so I was there maybe an hour before the service was supposed to start, and I'm thinking, Lord, I have no idea where I am. The truth is, if Google would tell me and be honest, Google doesn't have an idea where I am. So, Lord, if I'm ever going to see my wife again, you're getting me out of this place. And, and, and I just sat there for almost an hour, just, just, is this the place? How do you know? There's no way to know. And all of a sudden, a few minutes before 7 o'clock, you've had this happen. There's this man and this woman walking down the street. And, and you've been there, right? You're walking through the mall. I don't know why you'd want to, but you're walking through the mall and, and all of a sudden somebody's coming that way and something inside says brother and sister and you've never seen him before you probably never see him again but there's just something the spirit of God in them the spirit of God in you and and sure enough there's this man and this woman walking down the street and and I rolled down the window I said excuse me I said but y'all look like Baptist people and you know I followed them into that little building up to the third story and and in that little apartment turned church building my did we ever have a great service I think it was. I didn't understand a word they said, but I think it was a great service. 
But I got to tell you, sometimes you don't have to speak the language. I think, you know, we love to hear people singing out. And, and every special this week, I just love how you do it. You know, you're singing out with all your heart. But I got to tell you, the mightiest song service I was ever in, they weren't singing out with all their heart. They were singing down. In a place like Shanghai, China, my, there's coverings over the walls, soundproofing everywhere, black tarps over the windows. And, and when those people sing, they sing knowing their song might put them in jail tonight. I got to tell you, that's a powerful song service. And to sit in a bond Jordan with a handful of brothers and sisters in Christ. At night, I was thinking about this church in Smyrna. You know, much the same thing. Smyrna, Izmir, in a Muslim country today. I mean, here's this tiny little assembly of baptized believers. You would think everybody else would say, who knows? And even if we did know, who cares? What's that little thing going to do in comparison to the massive great government of the Roman Empire? But no, this little church in Smyrna had some enemies. Would you notice in your Bible who those enemies were? The Bible tells us in verse number 10, Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Now, wait a minute. It is the Roman Empire that arrested these Christians. It is the government called the Roman Empire that put them in jail. It is the Roman government that put them on trial. It is the Roman government that executed sentence against them. Every step of the way, their legal problems came from the Roman Empire. But did you see how the Bible puts it in verse 10? Though it was the Roman emperor and the Roman empire and the Roman police force that was inflicting all this punishment on this little church in Smyrna, the Bible says ultimately it was the devil who did this. And this becomes an incredibly hard thing, an incredibly hard thing, because we don't, believe me, I don't even want to go there. And I'll tell you, you don't want me to go there. And as Christian people, it's just a hard thing, and it's hard for us to accept. And especially like most of us here tonight, you know, when we bleed, we bleed red, white, and blue, and we love our country. And it's awfully hard to accept this. But Satan is in control of the governments of the world. One of the more stunning moments in the Bible to me is when Jesus and Satan are standing on a mountaintop and Satan and Jesus, in Luke it says, in a moment of time, they visit all the kingdoms, the governments of the world. And then Satan makes the offer, if you will fall down and worship me, all of these kingdoms are going to be thine. Now, of course, Satan knows that one day the kingdoms of the world are become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. He knows that's coming. But on top of that mountain, he was pretty much saying, I have a shortcut here. You can be the king now, and you don't have to go to a cross. You say, well, what authority did Satan have? And that's the thing. He looked at Jesus, and he boldly said, the kingdoms, the governments of the world have been delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. But what the stunning thing about that whole episode is, is that when Satan says, I run the governments of the world, and understand he's under checkmate by God to be sure, but he said, I run the governments of the world and give them to whomsoever I will. The stunning thing, Jesus didn't correct him. Now, that's why we scratch our head and say, why does it work like this? You know, I, I meet my congressman, congressman, I, I meet him, you know, down, a sto down at the Walmart Supercenter, and they're just like, Normal, you know. I mean, you meet him in town, and he's just a good old guy. She's a nice lady, and everything's fine. You know, they actually look normal. And then all of a sudden, they get on a plane, and they fly into Reagan Airport in Washington, D.C., and as soon as they hit the ground, something happens. What you and I really don't appreciate, and I don't know how we can, 
But a place like that, the government centers of the world, the Washingtons, the Londons, the Tokyos, the Moscows, these places are under the domain and the authority and the power of Satan. It's Satan's seat, so to speak. And what we don't appreciate is the enormous pressure that they are under to conform to Satan and his ways. Somebody's a good old guy here in Marysville. They're a very different person, perhaps, in Sacramento. We don't understand the enormous pressure that's on them because the kingdoms of this world belong to Satan and to whomsoever he wants to give it. And that's why the Bible tells us in verse number 10, for this tiny little church, you know, the Roman Empire is going to arrest you. They're going to put you in jail. They're going to put you on trial. and They're going to execute some of you. But ultimately, it wasn't the Roman Empire. It was the Roman Empire's emperor. And that would be Satan himself. You and I would think, who cares? Just little tiny church, just, just let them go. They're not going to hurt anybody. But Satan cared. And the whole weight of the Roman Empire comes down on this little church in Smyrna. They had a second enemy. Notice, if you would, in verse number 9, back up there, and he said, in the middle of that verse, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not. In the New Testament, those who say they are Jews and are not are historically or, or by nationality and birth, they are Jewish people. But God recognizes the true Jewish person as the one who has bowed their knee to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. They have bowed their knee to Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. So in the New Testament, the real Jews, like the Apostle Paul, the real Jews are like Peter. The real Jews are those who have bowed their knee to the Jewish Savior and the Gentile Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know, in a city like Smyrna, like virtually every city in the New Testament era, there's this massive, gorgeous synagogue. And in the synagogue, there are just great religious leaders that are so scholarly and, and so intellectual. And as they walk down the street, you know, you can hear the people saying, Rabbi, Rabbi, and why they are so impressive and, and the religion is so massive and the synagogues are ornate and they are gorgeous and, and the artwork on the walls and the music that they sing and everything about them says stateliness and religion and look at how glorious we are. And now the Bible tells us that on one side, the whole Roman Empire comes down on this little church. And on the other side, here comes the full weight of big box religion. Religion is their enemy. The government is their enemy. But do you see what he said in verse number nine? Religion is coming against you. But he said, ultimately, it's because they are the synagogue of Satan. You know, it's absolutely stunning for people to realize that Satan is in control of the governments. But you know what's even more stunning? Is that while most people got the idea, you know, Satan's this guy with a red outfit. He's got horns and a tail and he's got this pitchfork and he's in hell tonight yeah, laughing at people. Uh, breaking news bulletin. There's no pitchfork. There is no tail. There is no red outfit. There are no horns. He has not yet been to hell. He won't be in hell tonight and he's not going to hell anytime soon. Other than that, it's all right. You know what Satan appears as? An angel of light. That's what you're expecting Jesus to look like. But Satan is an angel of light. And you know what his ministers, his demons, you know how they appear? Oh, yeah, yeah, they appear as these creatures. They appear fierce. They appear angry. They breathe fire. Oh, no, no. No, they appear as ministers of righteousness. 
you want to know what Satan and his crowd look like, the best thing to do is get a remote control Sunday morning about 8 o'clock and start going through the channels. And you'll see them one by one by one. They pretend to be ministers of righteousness, but they make a merchandise of the gospel. They pretend to be ministers of righteousness, but they preach you can go to heaven by the works you do. They pretend to be ministers of righteousness, but they don't warn people about hell. They pretend to be ministers of righteousness, but they water down the gospel so far that nobody can understand how to be saved. And ultimately, when the government is coming down on the neck of this little church, and religion is coming down both times, it's ultimately done by Satan. Because Satan rules governments and Satan rules religion. That's awfully hard for people to handle, isn't it? And yet in this little church in Smyrna, it's the government, it's religion. They're hammering them, trying to shut them down. And all they got to do is show up next year, throw a little incense, say the words. You don't even have to mean them. Just say the words, Caesar is Lord, and you're good to go. And this little church would rather die. So a few years ago, I'm sitting in Beijing, China, and across the table, there's a guy, I'll call him Jimmy, we're sitting across the table, and, and Brother Jimmy's just doing an amazing job for the Lord in a rather large city in China, and what's not a rather large city in China. The Lord's allowed him to see a, a tremendous ministry. And, and, and as I was talking to him that day years ago, they had hundreds of people that would meet in six different churches across the city. And, and Brother Jimmy and I said, well, Brother Jimmy, what's your testimony? How'd you get saved? And he said, well, I was in medical school training to be a doctor when the Lord saved me. See, he said, soon I knew that God was calling me to preach. So one day I turned my back on a lucrative medical career and I said, Lord, whatever you want. And God called me to preach. He said, I trained with a preacher and pretty soon I, I went to the city where he's at tonight. And he said, we started a church and people started getting saved. He said, it came to the place where there were 275 adults that were coming on Sunday. In addition, we did an incredibly unusual thing in China. We started a Christian school. Now, now, you, so you got your children, your grandchildren in a Christian school. How are you going to do this in China? He said, when parents want to put their children in our school, he said, I sit down with them and I'm as frank as I can. He said, I explained to them that if you put your children in this school, they will never be able to get a scholarship and go to the university when they graduate. You understand, that's a big thing in America, but we can't understand how big that is in Asia. We can't even comprehend what that means in China. So if your children come to this Christian school, they are never going to advance. They are never going to have a big job. They are never going to have a great career. If they come to this Christian school, it will be for one reason. It is because you want them to learn the Bible and not Chinese propaganda. I said, well, Jimmy, how many you got in the school? He said, there's 50 kids. He said, our church was doing great, and then he said it started to happen. Brother Jimmy told me he's been in jail four times for preaching the gospel. When he told me that, <clears throat> I got to tell you, Brother Brown, I thought he was going to ask me how many times I was in jail. Fortunately, he didn't go there. I appreciated that. He said the last time was a Sunday morning. The authorities broke into the building in the middle of a service. This time, not only did they arrest me, but they also arrested my wife. 
I said, well, what did you do? He said, well, you know, he said, I started to read the book of Acts. I said, well, that's amazing how that works. And he said, I, I read what God wanted from that big church in Jerusalem was to go to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world for churches to start churches. So we took our one church and sent it out to six different areas of our city, and now one church has turned into six churches, and the Lord is doing it all over again. And when it was all said and done, I said, well, Jimmy, I said, the police come and they arrest you. The government's after you. I said, where does that persecution come from? And you know what I'm thinking? You know, the American view, right? I'm thinking there's this guy in Beijing with a star in his hat. And he's looking around for you Christians. And I'm going to get you. I'm going to find you. I'm coming after you. But he said, yeah, he said, that can happen. But he said, you know where the trouble comes for us? He said, all across China and in our city as well, there is a communist-approved religion called the Three-Self Church that, of course, is an incorrect name. It's not an assembly of baptized believers. It should be understood as a three-self religion. However, he said, in this religion of China that is approved by the communist government, where the government of China approves the ministers and approves the content that is spoken in the building on a Sunday morning, there are all kinds of people that are searching and seeking, and they find themselves in one of these buildings of the three-self-religion. But of course, all they hear is just a positive message. All they hear is a feel-good message. I'm glad that kind of stuff only happens in communist countries, not in America. We don't have that problem, but we're talking about communism now. And, and he says that's all they hear is just a, a feel-good message. So we said when they get under the sound of the gospel and they come to a church that will preach against sin and preach that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, the difference is so enormous that when men, ladies, and young people believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and they are saved, they instantly, and some of you have gone through this and you can appreciate this, they instantly in their heart become angry at that religion that never preached the gospel and never preached against sin. Had they stayed in that religion, they would have died and gone to hell. And of course, they leave that religion and they are baptized into a New Testament church. And Jimmy said, that's when the problem comes. He said, I've been in jail four times because the ministers of the three self-religion, they have reported me to the communist government. 2,000 years later, nothing's changed. 2,000 years later, if it's not the Roman Empire and government coming down on a little church, then it's going to be big box organized religion. This isn't going to do. We can't have a Bible Baptist church preaching a way to heaven apart from our good works of righteousness. We can't have a Bible Baptist church calling out sin. Hi, who do you think you are, Pastor Brown, to call right, right, and wrong, wrong? What moral authority do you think you have? Well, we do have a moral authority called the Bible. It is the people in our world that have zero authority. But you can be sure if Bible Baptist Church is going to do it right, like Smyrna, like my buddy in China, you're going to have two big enemies. Human government and organized religion. Because Satan is behind it all. So what's this little church to do? I mean, all the weight of the Roman Empire comes down on them and all the weight of big box religion comes down on them. So in verse number nine, you have a suffering church and this is what it looks like. Jesus said, I know thy works. And notice the next word in verse nine, and tribulation. 
that we wouldn't expect that word. We would expect the word tribulations. We would expect the Bible to say you got a lot of troubles and you got troubles from religion, you got troubles from your neighbor, you got troubles from the government, and if you want them all to go away, there's three magic words. Caesar is Lord. And now there are not just troubles, there are troubles everywhere you turn. But did you see that word? It's not tribulations. It is tribulation. And what that means is there comes a time where there are so many troubles and troubles never stop and troubles never go away where it's not the story now of people who have troubles. It is the story of people where trouble never goes away. Tribulation becomes their middle name. There's never a day where they don't have trouble. There is so much hassle. There is so much problems. There is so much persecution that the Bible says they went from having tribulations. So now tribulation is the story of their life never goes away and if that wasn't bad enough in verse number nine I know thy works in tribulation and poverty poverty is the next level beyond poor poverty is when you don't know when your next meals coming from poverty describes some of our brothers and sisters tonight in places like Pakistan and Afghanistan where someone is saved and they are born again and as soon as they are saved their family throws them out of the home I as soon as they are saved they are fired from their jobs as soon as they are saved they are persecuted and you know that little prayer give us this day our daily bread that you and I pray with a freezer full of food well there are believers tonight where a man will wake up tomorrow morning and say Lord I don't need food for tomorrow I don't need food for Saturday but I need food today to put in the mouth of my children and my wife. Poverty. This isn't poor. This is beyond poor. So now we have this little tiny church in this massive city of Smyrna with the weight of the government, with the weight of religion, and ultimately by under the authority of Satan. And they're coming down on this little church. And the Bible says, forget about troubles. That was the good old days. Now tribulation is the everyday story of their life. You go to this church and your life is going to be a mess. You go to this church and you're going to have trouble everywhere you turn. And it wasn't just the troubles. Now they've lost their job. They've lost their income. They've lost everything. And Boy, if they were poor, they'd be happy with that. But they're not poor. They're in poverty. Tribulation, poverty. And that doesn't prepare us very well for what happens next in that verse, does it? I know thy works, thy tribulation, and poverty, but the last thing we're expecting are these words. But thou art rich. You, know, you really can't find a New Testament assembly that even had their own building for about the first 300 years. Of course not. How are they going to pay for a building when they don't, nobody has a job? How are they going to pay for a building when they don't even know how they're going to put soup in the belly of their little children tomorrow? How are you ever going to have a building? That's why they would meet in courtyards. That was why they would meet anywhere they could. And you would look at this tiny little assembly in Smyrna. I would look at this tiny little assembly in Smyrna, and there's a lot of adjectives that we might come up with, but there is not one of us in this building that would ever look at them and call them rich. But Jesus did you know what that tells me? Jesus has a different definition of a rich church than we do. You know, we drive down the street, and, oh, look at that church. I really got to, look at those church buildings. You know, there really is no such thing. A church is an assembly of people, but I know what people are thinking. 
And it's just massive. Oh, look at that building. And look at that auditorium. And look at how much money. I mean, there are millions and millions of dollars in that. And we look at buildings and lands and bank accounts. And we look at all the technology and all the cool and all the new and all the latest. Well, is that ever a wealthy church? Well, boy, why we say the Lord is blessing them. But you know, if our thinking is the Lord blesses, that means that we are wealthy, healthy, prosperous. If we're going to take a Baptist version of the prosperity gospel and call that the blessing of God, then I will promise you we would never call this church a blessed church. We would never call the church in Smyrna a rich church. If the blessing of God means we got buildings, if the blessing of God means we got stuff, if the blessing of God means it's all pretty, then there's nothing pretty about this church in Smyrna. They have tribulation and they are broke. So if that's our definition of a rich church, this church isn't going to qualify. But that's why we need to understand that the prosperity gospel is fraudulent. It is the lie of Satan, the master of religion. God does not want you rich. God does not want you wealthy. God does not want you healthy. God wants you saved. And that's why he gave his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And we call blessed when we got all the stuff we want. We say we're blessed when we got all the new toys. We think we're blessed when we got the latest and the coolest. Blessed people are those who've been washed in their sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I'm afraid that our idea of a rich church has got zero to do with the Bible and all to do with our stuff. You know, you people, you have so many tribulations, you don't even have tribulations. You never have a day without it. Tribulation is your middle name. Hey, you know, that little church down there in Smyrna, why, you people, you got the whole weight of the Roman Empire trying to stamp you out, and you got big religion trying to put an end to you. You, know, you people down there, we used to call you poor. You're not poor anymore. You're worse than that. You're in poverty. Then all of a sudden, Jesus says, and oh, by the way, but you are rich. If Bible Baptist Church is going to be a rich church in the eyes of Jesus, it'll have nothing to do with acreage, nothing to do with buildings, nothing to do with all the stuff that we think it does. If Bible Baptist Church will be a rich church, could I show you what that'll mean? Look again, if you would, to your Bible in verse number 8. Two simple things. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things saith the first and the last which was dead and is alive. You know what a rich church does? It's not about buildings. It's not about properties. It's not about me. It's not about you. It is not about healing services, signs, wonders, and miracles. A rich church has their eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the beginning of this church, and he is the end of this church. He is the first and the last. He is the letter A. He is the letter Z. He is everything in between. A rich church is looking unto Jesus because he knows that before there ever was a, in the beginning, Jesus is. And long after this whole thing is gone, Jesus still is. And in between, no matter where you go, Jesus is the one who rules and reigns. So no matter how much suffering there is, no matter how bad the conditions might be, no matter how much the people are in turmoil, how, how much pain there is you are looking at a church that turned their eyes on jesus they looked in his wonderful face and no matter what they wouldn't turn away a rich church exalts jesus 
But notice the second thing in verse number 10. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried. And look at this. You shall have tribulation 10 days. You know, as an aside, this is when I really love the book of Revelation. You know? Uh-oh. Something's going to happen for 10 days. And right here, you know, this is where all the prophecy experts come along and the bloggers and the writers and, and the scholars, and, and they all show up and they're going to explain to us what 10 days actually means. And, and it really is stunning. And by the time they're done, you know, I think I probably read like 50 sources perhaps on this right here. What's 10 days? And 10 days can mean this and 10 days. But you know what all these experts, there is only one thing with them that 10 days can't mean. can mean anything else except for one thing. It can't mean 10 days. And I have this working theory as I go through Revelation. It's completely changed it for me. But I think the Lord knows what the number 10 means. And I do believe that since he's the one who created them, he knows exactly how long a day is. So when the Lord says 10 days, I have this, this theory. And I'm, I'm, it's my exegetical theory of the Bible. God said what he meant. And I know that sounds really like earth-shattering, but most scholars don't, don't have any belief of that at all. And so seeing as how God knows what 10 days, he said the persecution of this church is going to be 10 days. Now, what does that mean? Can I give you a guess? Maybe yes, maybe no, I don't know. But, but in Bible times, they had these games called the gladiatorial games. It's where men would file into a stadium, pay a lot of money for a ticket. They would get drunk to watch the entertainment. In Bible times, they call them gladiatorial games. Today, we just call it SEC football, but it's the same idea. And so a bunch of drunks file into the stadium, and what they would see is they wanted to see two men fight mano a mano right to the death. Sometimes it was man against beast, but they were there to see the blood. They were there to see the show. They were there to see a fight. And, and you know, if you're going to pay a lot of money and buy a lot of booze to watch a big fight, you really want to see a good fight. So oftentimes, before somebody will be sent out into the arena... They would be trained for 10 days to two weeks on how to use a weapon and how to fight. Is that what they're talking about here? I have no idea. But what I do know is that when you're suffering, 10 days can seem like a long time. But it's still only 10 days. It's temporary. So what did Jesus tell this church to do? You're going to go to prison. You're going to suffer. Some of you are going to be executed. But at the end of verse number 10 or in the middle of that verse, in the middle of all the tribulation, in the middle of all the poverty, you see what he said? Be thou faithful unto death. And that's it. That's what a good, rich church does. A rich church says we're going to follow him. We're going to love him. We're going to preach him. We're going to exalt him. We're going to turn our eyes on him and not look back. And then the Bible tells us that until the day they die, they're going to be faithful to him. They're not going to compromise. They're not going to back down. They're not going to give in. No, they're not going to throw the incense. No, they're not going to say the words. If they die, they would rather die than shame their Savior. And a rich church has got nothing to do with carpet. It's got nothing to do with buildings. It's got nothing to do with acreage. It's got nothing to do with bank accounts. To Jesus, his rich church is a church that keeps on watching him and a church where they're faithful unto death. That's a rich church. So if Bible Baptist Church is going to be a rich church, this has absolutely nothing to do with how much money comes into the offering on Sunday. Nothing to do with it at all. If Jesus is going to say Bible Baptist Church is a rich church, it will be because there is a pastor and a people who love Jesus with all their hearts and a people who stay faithful to him no matter the cost 
until they died. And all they had to do was just throw a little incense. And all you got to do is just get along. Just say the word, Caesar is Lord. And this little church, they would rather die. So a few years, and I mean a very short time after God gave them this letter, a man becomes the pastor of the church in Smyrna, and his name is Polycarp. And in an era when religion was attacking, as it is true today, religion attacking the Lord Jesus Christ, and by now in John's day, the great religious experts, scholars, teachers, they were saying, well, Jesus is an angel, or Jesus is a created being, or Jesus is this, so Jesus is that. And that's why when you read First John, it's all the more powerful. John says, knock it off. He's an old man now. He says, you see these hands? These hands have handled him, and these eyes have seen him. You hear about him, but John says, I know him. He is not a created being. He is not an angel. Jesus Christ is the king of kings. And now here's Polycarp, and he was bold. You can read some of his old messages. <laughs> he took the liberals on. He was just a great guy. And then one day it was his turn. Polycarp, you've got to throw the incense. Polycarp, you got to say the words, and he wouldn't do it. So they took this old preacher, they put him on trial, and they, execute, they, they put him up for execution. They condemned him to die. And as they brought him to the place where he would be burned at the stake, the authorities of religion carry the wood to crucify him, and they were going to nail him to the cross before they burned him to the wood. And Polycarp said, save your nails, I'm not going anywhere. And as the fire began to circle the body of Polycarp, his last words, he lifted up his voice and said, I give thee thanks that thou, Lord, hath counted me worthy of this day and this hour that I should have a part in the number of thy martyrs, in the cup of Christ, and in the resurrection of eternal life. And with praise on his lips, Polycarp went to meet his Savior. And all he had to do, all he had to do, throw a little incense, say a few words he wouldn't do it and this church of Smyrna wouldn't do it and while all the religion and everybody else was just get along there was this tiny little assembly of baptized believers in the middle of Smyrna that said we'd rather do what's right Jesus said that is my rich church the Bible Baptist Church will be a rich church. It will be because the people in this auditorium make it so. Father in heaven, would you please do your work tonight in this place, in our hearts, and in our lives. And, and for someone without Jesus, may they understand Jesus is where salvation begins and ends. He is the first and the last. May tonight be the night when they are saved. I pray for your people that the word of God would challenge our hearts and break our hearts and in a world of compromise. I pray you would find a people that keep their eyes on Jesus and a people that would rather be faithful unto death. I wonder before I finish praying if somebody here tonight would say, Preacher, I'm not saved. I don't know if I died tonight that Jesus Christ is my Savior and I want to know from the Bible that Jesus has taken my sins away. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done. Jesus, only Jesus is the Savior. The big question then, is Jesus your Savior? Is there someone here tonight that would say, I need you to pray for me, and then I need Pastor Brown to help me. 
I want to know how the Bible says that a sinner like me can have eternal life. I need to be saved according to the Bible. Is there somebody tonight? If, if you just quietly raise your hand, I'd love to pray for you. And, and tonight, we'd like to help you right out of the Bible because the answer is never get religion. The answer is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there somebody like that tonight? That's me. That's me. Pray for me. I need to be saved. Father, we give you this invitation, and I pray in this building tonight you would find members of Bible Baptist Church who are willing to say no matter the cost, no matter the price, we're going to be faithful to Jesus and faithful unto death. I pray for your convicting power tonight in the great name of Jesus, I ask. Would you stand together with me prayerfully tonight? And, and as we begin to play that invitation, of course, if you're not saved, we always encourage you to come. We'd like to help you from the Bible. You can know you're going to heaven. But tonight, if God deals in your heart as a Christian, ladies, gentlemen, young people of Bible Baptist Church, you are the ones that will either make this church a rich church or you're the ones that will cause Jesus to say, go back to Calvary. If this church is rich, it is because the people in this room have their eyes on Jesus because the people in this room are faithful unto death. Would you join these at an altar tonight as we play that song for you?